0: It can be scary when you think about how much of our so-called personal and confidential information is actually accessible in so many places and by so many different people and organizations. You need to learn what's being done with this information and how to keep yourself secure. Welcome to My Connected Life with Tyler Cohen Wood. When you're in control of your data in cyberspace, you feel all the more secure. Now, here's your host, Tyler Cohen Wood.
1: Welcome to My Connected Life. I'm your host, Tyler Cohen Wood. Today, we have a really exciting show. We're going to talk about scams, identity theft, and fraud. Millions of people's lives are destroyed by identity theft, scams, and frauds, and that number is only getting higher. How do you know if you're being scammed? Well, we're going to talk to you today. We're going to show you how to protect yourself, your data, your family, and your business from falling from scams. Now, today we are very lucky because we not only have one Scott, we have two Scots. Scott Oggenbaum is with us. Welcome, Scott. He's the author of The Secrets to Cybersecurity and Former Supervisory Special Agent for the FBI Cybercrime Fraud Unit. During his 30 years of investigating cybercrime, Scott has interacted with thousands of cybercrime victims. <clears throat> now, I'd also like to welcome back Scott Schober, president and CEO of Berkeley Veratronic Veritro- Ver- Systems. He's the author of three best-selling books: cybersecurity books: Hacked Again, Cybersecurity is everybody's business, and Senior Cyber. Welcome to the show, Scott.
2: Hey there, how are you today? Thanks so much for having me. It's going to be really confusing as we have two Scots here today.
1: <clears throat> Your voices are distinct enough, though.
3: <laughs> yes. Great so, to be
1: here. Great, great to have you here. So so when I so I have investigated crimes, but at a forensic level, just digital forensics, I never really interacted with victims. I've interacted with suspects, but not victims. Um, and. <clears throat> But I know you, Scott, have interacted with thousands of victims.
2: Absolutely. yeah. Yeah, Sure. And, And that's what kind of drives me today, because, you know, I wrote a book called The Secret to Cybersecurity. And if you're looking to read a good book by an FBI agent who saved the day and put a lot of bad guys in jail, Don't read my book. That's not what my book's about, because I handled cybercrime since 1998. I had a chance to interview almost a thousand cybercrime victims. And the thing that really kind of drove me is the unfortunate thing about it is if you're a victim, the chances of law enforcement getting your stuff back or fixing your problem or getting your information off the dark web is really hard putting the bad guys in jail since cybercrime is no longer a localized problem most of the bad guys are located overseas and those two driving factors happened every day to me every day for years, it was the same thing. I couldn't help people. And then I discovered that most of the victimizations that I dealt with easily could have been prevented. So when I retired four years ago, I started what I like to say is Passion Project Life, which is trying to teach people how not to become the next cybercrime victim. And I've dealt with senior citizens, I dealt with kids, I've dealt with large organizations, and there's really not a lot of information. And I know Scott over here wrote an amazing book dedicated to keeping seniors safe. And Scott, my hats are off to you on what you did with that.
1: Yeah. Can you tell us a little about what got you interested in writing that book? Because it is really an area where a lot of scams happen to people that are at a senior age. And your book is one of the only books that really touches upon that topic.
3: Yeah, I think it was interesting because Maybe to, to, to Scott's point there, initially, I was really kind of a victim. I'm working in the in the security field. We're making wireless threat detection tools, and we're selling to DOD agencies and law enforcement, FBI is one of our big customers. And so we get security. We understand it. Yet I was targeted. My, my first book, Hacked Again, where, where they just kept going after me. The more I educated people and helped people, the more they would go after me. Twitter account. Uh, credit card, debit card, repeated DDoS attacks where they flooded our, our website with, uh, so we couldn't do online commerce. And then we had $65,000 stolen out of our checking account, became a federal investigation. So it was painful. I did work with law enforcement um, and the bank and a lot of companies and got a lot of help. Eventually, I got all my money back But it was painful, and it was hard, and I did learn for for somebody that has a smaller, you know, if they're a victim of a hack, law enforcement's probably not going to pick the phone up and race to your aid and help you through the process. I was fortunate enough to get the help, and this was a couple years ago, but it was hard. Um, Then as I progressed in educating people, the one area I was always struggling with was helping my my parents who were both uh, senior and having some underlying health conditions. And then my grandfather was 99 years old. I couldn't find any great sources, any books, any videos that really spoke to that audience and didn't speak down to them or it spoke in tech jargon and it was confusing and everybody's overwhelmed. So I said, that's it, I'm gonna write a book that is directed toward the senior population and those that are aiding seniors. And, and hence, Senior Cyber started, and it took a while because I had to interview a lot of seniors and sit down and kind of <clears> get in their head, in a sense, and understand their frustrations. And once I was able to do that, it, it went from there. It went smooth, the writing of it. My, my brother Craig was the co-author also. So it was a fun project, and we've been getting great feedback ever since from a lot of seniors and the caregivers as well to the seniors.
2: Because I guarantee you right now, I mean, there's no user manual for trusting people. And I will guarantee you right now, there is one of our elderly parents is going to get a text message on their cell phone and there's no product that's going to prevent that from happening. And it's going to say, hey. This is the IRS. We just want to let you know that you have a tax refund coming in the amount of $475. And all you need to do is click on the link. Now, when you click on the link, there's no malware in this website. So the antivirus is going to let it right in. And now your parents are going to put in, it's going to say, please enter your name, date of birth, social security number. And if you don't want to check mailed, you will direct deposit it into your bank account. And now you give up all that information. You are the next victim and local law enforcement can't really help you the fbi can't really get involved because the amount isn't uh great enough and even if when we do open the investigation i've seen money disappear because it's all going overseas and that's why shows like this tyler that you're hosting are so important because this message needs to get out and unfortunately a lot of people aren't talking about this because Scott, I'm sure you're a millionaire right now with all the money you're getting from this book, right? <laughs> yeah, no, nobody—it sure, doesn't are happen. Yeah, <laughs> no. I mean the products that we see today are designed to help enterprises, and there's not a lot of people like yourself and Tyler who are going out sharing this information with the public.
1: Yeah, you know it was interesting um, when I, I wrote Catching the Catfishers, and I wrote that book. Which is different? It's teaching kids and parents how to protect themselves in the online domain, and really how to vet of who you're talking to is who they say they are. <laughs> that was sorry, Scott just held up my book. That was really funny. <laughs> um, and when I moved on to uh, to uh, Dia. I still kept in touch with all the agents I had worked with and all the people that I had worked with at IBM doing doing similar work. And one of them told me this horrific story about this girl. She was an eleven-year-old girl. She'd been targeted um, by a forty-seven-year-old man who convinced her he was thirteen. He knew everything about her. And the guy was fortunately caught for just distribution of, of of exploitation of children material. And they saw on the computer he had was having these conversations with this girl. And it turned out this guy had been going to the mother's social media pages, her dating site. Um, she had blogs. She had pictures that still had exit data in those pictures. And fortunately, the guy was caught for something else. But I think people, when they say, I don't really have anything to lose, you know, what are they going to do? but you do you have a lot to lose you have more to lose than you may think and you know scott scott s you know you you are very lucky that you were able to recover that that money because scott e what what are the chances of someone being able to recover all that money in a situation like that <clears throat> scott a
2: oh I'm sorry. I was daydreaming because I thought you started out with Scott S. Let me tell you, once your money is gone, it's gone. It goes around the world. I've dealt with the business email compromise. And the thing about me is I've dealt with these things personally. I've seen people's lives completely, completely destroyed. When large organizations lose $12 million, I'm going to be honest, I didn't lose a lot of sleep. But I've seen small organizations get destroyed. I have seen... Children uh, get approached. I mean, I handled the Crimes Against Children program for years. and like you said, I mean, I've arrested law enforcement officers. I've arrested clergymen. We had this one over the road trucker who was communicating with our ba- with our undercover, and it was one of these games that the undercovers would play. Let's see how close we can bring a bad guy to the FBI office so we don't have to travel far. So the FBI agents communicating with this over the road trucker who's coming in from Norman, Oklahoma, and he's communicating with what looks to be a 13 year old girl and he's sending images of child exploitation. So that already is a felony. We know it's going to be on his computer. And we tell this guy, hey. I live here. Why don't you stop over and come here? So he pulls up on his maps and he says, Hey, wait a second. Your house is two blocks away from the FBI office. And the young and and our undercover, who's pretending to be a 13 year old girl, goes, whoa, that is so cool. And the guy was like, OK. So he pulls his truck right past the FBI office and we arrest him. We had a little bit of explaining to do because now we had a truck parked outside in front of the building. <laughs> but on his possession, he had a stun gun. He had handcuffs. Oh he gosh. had all these paraphernalia. Oh and I think parents need to understand this. Because if your money is stolen, you're gonna you'll figure it out. But if something happens to your kids and think about that, when that happens, how do we fix those problems? We have Fort to focus Forty on mother, prevention. Grandmother. Yeah, mm-hmm. we have to focus on prevention. And it breaks my heart because and this is what drives me to do what I do, because I didn't feel like I could do enough when I was with the
3: FBI. To be perfectly honest.
1: I I understand that.
3: I think it can be very frustrating too, trying to, to your point, getting funds recovered and going through that process. And maybe one thing that I did differently than some other victims is I I did a lot of research. I rolled up my sleeves. I dug in. I talked to a lot of people. I called the bank and immediately I said, I need to to speak to the, the person in charge here in the fraud department. I need to know exactly where the funds went that were removed from my account. And they said, Mr. Schober, we don't have to tell you that. And yeah, I said, know that's
2: the very frustrating.
3: I said, I, I need to I need to know that because I'm going to be investigating this myself in, in tandem with law enforcement. And they came back a little later and said, OK, we'll disclose that to you, which I was surprised, but I was glad. And, and one of it was interesting. One of the, it, was, it was a woman's name in New Jersey, and part of that money went to pay her final mortgage payment off. What, what I did, though, is I took there was about six names that this money went out to, I guess they kind of launder it and spread it after the the cyber criminals get the money. And I did research on them. Same thing with those that were uh, taking over my Twitter account. And I went down in the dark web, did some searches working with an Israeli company and identified some of them were actually notorious hackers. So I was able to at least trace it back and then eventually get the funds recovered, but it was a lot of work and it took a lot of effort. I don't think the average person is going to take that time or have the resources to go do that. But again, that's that's our business. So we have some things that are available that helped us for that, but very frustrating.
2: And you're so lucky, Scott, that that happened. Because let me just explain what happens to a neighbor of mine. The, he has a real estate company. He's a retiree, 70 years old. He's not using two-factor authentication. If there's one point, If you do not have two factor authentication on all of your personal accounts, you are in the same boat with almost all of my victims. They got into his email account and from his email account, they read all of his emails and they put a forwarding rule and they were able to get everything. And his he was expecting about eighty five thousand dollars to come in. So they knew it was coming in. They spoofed an email from him or they send it from his account but he doesn't have two factor they send they spoof it to his treasury guy and and they go like this hey i just want to let you know i changed bank account i'm still banking at wells fargo but here's the different account number and the guys like they send the money over and then by the time they discover it he realizes the money went to what we call a mule account which is an a willing participant I could not call a bank and demand that. I would need a grand jury subpoena. I couldn't get a grand jury subpoena unless the crime was over $250,000. When I would interview these people, and it was time and time again, because what do we do? We follow the money. It went to somebody who sent it to another bank, to another bank. I've touched $150 million worth of losses. And Tyler, as me and you discuss all the time, you know what killed me? Almost all of it could have been prevented.
1: Well, I think that's where we should focus. And I just want to go back to the beginning of your point and just kind of explain what two-factor authentication is. Um, two-factor authentication is when you're using two methods to authenticate yourself, your identity to whatever service you're logging into, whether it's Twitter, um, any social media, your bank. And um, what that means is maybe you ha- you type in a password, something that you know, and they text you a code to your phone and you type that code in. So something that you have. Um, I always recommend if you can use more than two methods, like including something that you are, such as a fingerprint or your face scan, that's going to go a long way to protect you. I'm not saying that those are not hackable, but you're, you're less likely to be If you take all of those precautions
2: and none of my victims had it and the adoption rate, I've been trying to get people to do this for years, especially big companies, and they're spending money on products and services and they don't have it and they all say it's a big pain. I've been screaming about this for almost a decade. Now, I have my reasons why, but Scott, you're out there. You're on the tip of the spear. You're dealing with clients. Why do you think the adaption rate if you're if I'm here, I am. And this is a great frustration of mine. I'm going out. I'm telling people, bad guys, get your stuff. You're not getting it back. Nobody's going to jail. However, if you would have put two factor on, we really would have reduced your chances of becoming a victim. And
3: nobody does it. Why do you think people are so slow to adapt this? I I always explain it this way. People, by nature, are kind of lazy. And they always choose convenience over security again and again. And it frustrates me. I was talking about this yesterday. I was presenting on the topic. And again, when you just get a show of hands in the audience, you see how many people use Gmail and Yahoo and this and that. And I tell them, hey, two-factor authentication is available. Do you use it? And it's crickets. Nobody wants to because it takes too long. It's annoying Or they say it's really not secure. I said, well, nothing's 100% secure. Even if you get something texted to your phone, uh, a one-time passcode, it's not 100% secure. Somebody's going to do a SIM swap or things like that. However, it is better than doing nothing at all. And that's what I think people don't realize. Do something don't just be complacent and do nothing. And I think that's that's a very um, difficult part about what we're all doing is trying to get people to do the basics. We can't even get people to create a long and strong password, yeah. and, and not reuse their password across multiple login sites, and so on and so forth. How are we going to get them to take that next leap and use two-factor, multi-factor authentication? It's tough.
2: And it most tough. of my most of my buddies, Tyler, who are retired from the FBI. Are all working for intrusion response companies. And they kill. I'm, I'm
1: not surprised. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and I was talking. And I,
1: and I probably know some of them.
2: <laughs> yeah. Listen, these are all buddies of mine and everything. And almost 85% of their dealings today are account compromise. The other 15%'s ransomware. we can talk. that's in a whole nother rabbit hole. That's another topic. <laughs> yeah, but, but but think about this. and my joke, when I go out because I provide training to organizations, and one of the things that I tell them is if you don't use two-factor authentication, you're going to be the next victim. However, if you don't want to put it on, I don't care. And I say that in jest. I yes. said, just when you have a breach, Call me first. I'll introduce you to three of the big players. I have to rotate it. And I will guarantee you that I can get 10% off your five, six, or seven-figure intrusion response retainer, and then they'll kick me back 25%. And I can't say kick back. It's called a finder's (laughs) fee. Yep. And it is a compromise. I mean, look at what happened even in the Robin Hood thing, all over the news. Hey, sophisticated data breach. They socially engineered. And that's what you talk about. That's the whole point on catfishing. They're figuring out how to do this. Yep.
1: We uh, we are taking calls. If if um you have a call from the United States, call 1866 472 5788. Um, international zero zero one four eight zero three nine eight one three nine four. So Scott, how, what, how was the money taken? Was it a, a business email compromise? And if so, can you, can you tell us a little about that?
3: This is Scott S. you're asking. Yes. <laughs> yeah, th- this was actually, it's interesting, it was orchestrated through the bank. So it was targeting myself and targeting the counts through the bank where actually cyber criminals were impersonating different tellers and shifting funds around. So they actually had to work their way into the bank to do some of these things, which is, I think, a little bit more advanced of an attack than the typical attack where they're just going after you know, a whaling attack where they're going after a CEO and doing wire transfer fraud or something like that, getting it was the receptionist.
1: Very sophisticated. To it's crazy. Yeah. You were targeted.
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there were other accounts as well in the investigation that opened up, other individuals with accounts that they also siphoned money out of. So it got very complex. And and I guess needless to say, I, I guess I can't go into all the details of it, but some heads were spinning afterwards and people uh were arrested, so on and so forth. So it's, it, was, it was a big mess in the end of it. But it was interesting to see the process. And I think to, to law enforcement's credit, it's not easy to do a lot of this. And, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. A couple of years ago, I, I speak every year down, down your neck of the woods, uh, Tyler, in uh, D.C., Espionage Research International. We talk about some of the different tools and techniques that are used the physical world and radio frequency, but also cybercrime. And they actually brought in one of the senior FBI agents, and he shared with us the top ten notorious cyber criminals and how they were caught. And I was kind of blown away because he took us through each specific case and the and, and the whole kind of pyramid structure of how it works. And in all the cases of all ten that where they were caught, it was social media and bragging. They got these big egos, they talk a lot to their buddies, and they didn't cover their tracks well enough. And FBI, the FBI agents did a great job, and they were pretending that they were actually cyber criminals and doing some other interesting techniques to fool these cyber criminals until eventually they got enough information on them to kick the door in and arrest them. And, and most of them, of course, as, as we all know, were overseas. And that's where it becomes very expensive and time-consuming. I was wondering, Scott, from from some of the background and stuff you've done, have you noticed that, that you see a high percentage of them, big egos, bragging, and, and overseas?
2: Well, first of all, when I was running the cyber squad in Nashville, I would say 98% of what I dealt with was overseas. Okay. The other 2% were insiders and that stuff. So 98% of them were overseas. And don't get me wrong, the FBI and the Secret Service does an amazing job. When I was an investigator, what did I do? I would investigate cases. and But as the older I got, the more I realized that, okay, even if I can go through this investigation and get the subpoenas and get the mutual legal assistance treaties and then come up with dead end after dead end with bank accounts in Eastern Europe and Nigeria, the bad the victims still couldn't get their money back. And I would take a lot of flack because I remember one time I'm doing a presentation and there's an, uh, this is when I was with the FBI and I said, look, the chances of law enforcement getting your stuff back is slim to none. And the chances of putting the bad guys in jail is really hard. And I kind of got reprimanded for that. And I was at the end of my career and I kind of have a little bit of Tourette's for sarcasm. And when that happened, I said to the assistant director, I said, how stupid do you think these people are? And he gave me this look. And I started to smile because look at this Office of Personnel Management, 21.5 million records stolen, Anthem, 78 million, Home Depot, Target, Sony, JP Morgan, Equifax, and Hilton, eight data breaches. What do they all have in common? My stuff was in all of them. And even if you get those bad guys and you put them in jail, you're still not going to make the victims. So why do we not focus on the prevention aspect? And that's where and that's why I retired at 50. I had a hard time retiring. I loved my job, but I knew I can do more outside of the FBI to help people. And that's the name of the game because nobody's looking out for the end user. I hate to say it.
1: Yeah, that's that's. It's, it, it's awful. And I mean, that's who's really, really hurt at the end of the day. I mean, you know, I, I, I have a very good friend and his life was almost destroyed. He signed up for a phone, put in the social security number, thought he was doing everything right. And suddenly his credit starts just going crazy. And someone's trying to take out a mortgage in his name. And um, he thought it took him a very long time um, to really get that kind of sorted until, um, I don't know, about a year later, he gets pulled over and there's a warrant for his arrest in another state because the criminals had everything that they needed. They took out a driver's license in another state and committed crimes with it. So there was a warrant out for his arrest. I mean, just. It's horrible what it does to people's lives.
2: And there's nobody there to pick up the pieces. And that's what, you know, what's so important that we get these messages out and we can provide people with some really good advice, which I hope we'll be able to do. Because this is what I say if 90% of what I dealt with during my career easily could have been prevented, why don't we just focus on those areas first? And a lot of my victims, they all had antivirus but we're dealing with social engineering. A lot of them had identity theft protection, which didn't stop money from going out of their bank accounts. So it's an obligation that we have because I hate to say if the government's not going to come in, the government's not going to save us here. We have to have
3: what I like to call the cyber secure mindset. I think that's a really good point there because if we rely just on tools, like like he mentioned, antivirus and, and anti-malware software and things like that, that stops on average about 20% of the viruses coming in from the computer. So what does that mean? I always point out to people, that means that 80% of them are getting through. So it doesn't really do enough to stop. We have to do more ourselves and take cybersecurity kind of responsible. If we take that responsibility and do things, as we talked about, the multi-factor authentication, strong passwords, not being too social on social media, take Proactive steps; it'll really make the cyber criminals move on just to another target. They're not going to stop; yeah. they're just going to move on to another target. That's really what they yeah. do. They're going for the easy money.
1: When we're going to take a quick break, um, but when we get back, we're going to talk more about some of these steps and some some of the things that you can do to keep yourself protected. And if you've been if you've been scammed, a romance scam, any type of scam, please call in. We want to hear from you. Uh, it's toll-free, 472 5788 International, 001-480-398-1394. So please give us a call. We want to hear your stories. And when we get back, we'll listen to your stories. We'll talk about more stories. And we'll tell you what you can do to scam-proof your life.
0: the internet's number one talk station number one talk station Voiceamerica.com. tune in to the voice america variety channel on the voice america talk radio network voice america variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com You're listening to My Connected Life with Tyler Cohen Wood. To reach the show during the live broadcast please call in to 1-866-472-5788 That's 1-866-472-5788 You may also send an email to tyler.com at TylerCohenWood.com Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to My Connected Life. I'm your host, Tyler Cohen Wood. And today we are talking about scams, identity theft, and fraud. Um, Scott, Scott A. was just about to tell us um, one of his, his stories and kind of go through some steps on what could have been done to really prevent um, this from happening.
2: Yeah, I want to walk through something and then we'll, the group of us will dissect this and then we'll be able to say, okay, does this fit what I talk about? Could it, did this person get the money back? Did anyone go to jail? Could it have been prevented? It was probably about five years ago in Nashville where I have this celebrity who comes to me and says, hey, I got this huge issue. Cyber criminal get into every single account of theirs And locked them out, shut them down on the website, ordered products and services and shipped them everywhere. I mean, and it was spoofing things, and from there got into other people's accounts, and there they were completely, completely devastated by this. Well, I get involved with it and I sit down, and, you know, and it's always difficult talking to victims because you see all the pain and suffering, they don't know what to do. And no matter what happens here, she can't get rid of the bad guy. I'm able to track this bad guy down because what ended up happening is the bad guy is using a Gmail account and I'm working with local law enforcement and they just got a search warrant. So we're reading all these emails and the bad guy sending everything to his house over in Bangladesh. Okay. Bangladesh. But however... You know, so we track this bad guy down. There's probably about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of losses. So I get the U.S. Attorney's Office involved. We're doing this. I reach out to my counterpart who's over at the legal attache over in New Delhi, India. I think it was New Delhi and Mumbai. And we have FBI agents who handle Bangladesh. And we have a guy who's going out there. So he goes over and he meets with the Bangladesh authorities. And I give him all this information. I'm reading this guy's email. I'm looking at him. I got his pictures. I got his passport. I know who this kid is, who's a one-man crime spree overseas. We go to Bangladesh and they go, okay, there's no extradition treaty. They won't honor any mutual legal assistance treaties. However, they're working with us and they're like, hey, look, The Bangladesh guys will find this guy. They'll probably, you know, get rid of him or something. And I'm like, okay, that'll solve the cybercrime problem. But as soon as we start working with the Bangladesh officials, what happens? There's a bombing over there and that's not a priority because the victim is here. So let's kind of go through this a little bit here and let's just see what happened. So we do this. we, We start digging in a little further and we see that this individual used the same password for all of their platforms. Oh no. And had a common password and what do people do? Their name and their kids. So the bad guy gets into the Facebook account and from and here's a common statistic. 66% of the population is using the same password for multiple platforms. And there's so many passwords on the dark web. So from there, they got into the bank account. They got in here. They got into all these different accounts. She was able to be made whole on her personal accounts, but not her business accounts. Because the bad guys were, it it wasn't covered. And then we were able to go in a little bit deeper. And no matter what she was doing, the bad guy kept getting into her account. She would change her phone numbers. She would change this. She would change that. And we kept going, is this guy? He's 19 years old. How does he keep changing things? And this is some really good advice for stalkers. This is how to see if your account is compromised. And we ran into this by complete luck. He put a forwarding rule on her email. And every time she went to change the password, it didn't matter. And so here it is, all of a sudden, this person's life was turned upside down. They locked her out of her websites. They locked her out of her social media. The bad guy was using her email as an attack platform to go in. And at the end of the day... We were not able to make the victim whole and get their money back. We could not put the bad guy in jail. Now, I'm gonna leave this open. Let's have a discussion about this. Could this easily have been prevented? Yes. <laughs> okay, yes. Tyler, what do you think? What's the first what's the first big issue here?
1: Well, the, the same password, easy first off, easy password to guess. Uh, second thing, using the same password on every single account and not utilizing two-factor or multi-factor authentication.
2: Yeah, let's go into each one of these steps. I mean, Scott, you know, I mean, today there are 8.4 billion usernames and passwords
3: on the dark web today. Mm -hmm. So what are the cyber criminals going to do with those passwords? Oh yeah, they're they're going to put them together in a database. They're going to sell them a couple bucks per password, and it's easy to obtain for any cyber criminal. One thing that I do personally, and I always encourage other people to do it, is you can have your credentials scanned, your email scanned on the dark web. It doesn't cost that much. It's really simple, and I get a report once a month if my password is ever uh, breached. My email login credentials, I'll get an immediate alert and it shows me and says, oh, Scott Schober, your password was compromised in a LinkedIn data breach. What do I do? I jump on there and I change my password immediately. So it gives something proactive that I could respond to. Otherwise, you're in the dark. You find out months later when it's too late and they do just what happened here where the account is taken over and it's hard to, to the recover then. And just the pain that this
2: person was going through, because the cybercriminal got into her account, her email, and from her email, he was phishing people and it was getting people to say, hey, I need money. I need to do these things. So what we have to really realize here is it goes back to the account compromise. It goes back to phishing emails. Are you one of the 66% of the population who's using the same password for multiple platforms? So I want to ask both of you, what do you think about that? Knowing what you know now, the advice I tell people is identify your mission-critical personal platforms. Mm -hmm. So what do you think, people, knowing what you know now, what advice, you know, what are the top platforms that people need to secure at home? What do you think?
3: Well, I, I know myself, I always analyze, what am I trying to protect? Is it intellectual property? Is it employee records, social security number, so on and so forth? Is it when it's something where it's a payment platform, like online banking or getting paid from the government? I actually do old school, and a lot of people make fun of me. I have a black book that I write passwords down, long and strong, impossible to remember. But then I use a layered approach. I take my password book, locked in a safe, locked in an office, locked in a building, cameras, alarms, so on and so forth. The ones that are near and dear to me that I control. It's not very convenient, but it's very secure. For other passwords, I use a good password manager, Dashlane, haven't been compromised yet, Um, encrypted, hashed it's easy to use, but secure. So I try to balance the approach. And I always encourage people, analyze how many passwords you have. I got a little more than 200 passwords I actively manage. That's a lot. It's no, hard absolutely. to have a really thick black book to do that. So a combination of the two works well for me.
1: Yeah, and I, the- I, I, I use a password manager as well, and, and I recommend it. But you know, one thing that I think you have to be cautious about is the master password for your your password manager. This is a tool that has all of your passwords encrypted, like like Scott just said. And then there's one master password, but you have to make the master password so complex. But it doesn't have to be something that um, you'd have to write in a book. You just have to really think about a phrase or something that you know, that is not personal, would be difficult for someone to find out, or, you know, some, some sort of a phrase that will help like you passphrase. to remember what that passphrase is. I'm going to
2: admit be. to both okay. of you guys, I don't use a password manager because I can't find one that I can explain to my mom. But what I end up doing here is I don't treat every password equally. I identify what are my mission critical accounts and people don't really think about this because I want everyone to think about this breach, you know, all these dark web passwords that we overlook. Do we have, do we have cameras in our house? I mean, how many ring doorbell cameras passwords are on the dark web? Now, I don't care about my ring doorbell. You can look outside, but do you have cameras in your house, Scott or Tyler? And I hope they're, You know, if you don't have two, if you don't identify those and you don't have two factor authentication, I can guarantee you there are forums where people are trading usernames and passwords. However, if you don't mind people looking at your life, I'm not going to judge you until we go off the air, of course, then we'll.
1: (laughs) Actually, I'm so glad you brought that up because. One of the most important things that you can do for those camera systems, alarm systems, your Wi-Fi network, anything, do not keep the default password. You have to change the password. That it, It's critical.
3: Oh, yeah. And you don't have to use one that's connected to the Internet, too. It's what a lot of people assume. Hey, a wise camera is great. It's cheap. But guess what? As Scott mentioned, there are forms out there. I could easily go on, I know, find the IP address for an open, unsecure camera, and I could watch whatever, inside, outside, doesn't matter. I have a, a camera system here for our company. It's offline. It's not connected into the Internet. And it just goes 24-7 digitally recording things. We had an accident out in our parking lot recently. I actually used that as evidence to help solve the problem. We had another time, it was a couple of years ago, uh, two companies across the street from us, I thought it was interesting, they noticed that we had cameras, they came over and they said, we have somebody that steals copper from us on a routine basis. We can't figure it out. And that's we were That's a New York thing. I haven't yeah, dealt with that New in York.
2: 26 years.
3: In, in the end, it was interesting. Law enforcement came over, the owners came over. We went back, I scrolled through the video. And sure enough, it was an inside job, an employee with a pickup truck. They drilled a hole through the building. And these are giant spools. They take big spools, spool them down to hundred foot rolls for Home Depot. And every night they'd go there and they'd yank thousands of feet off Fill up the truck bed at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and they would drive away. And they were making a mint, and nobody could catch them. And a simple old school camera with DVR wow. caught them. So old school sometimes is actually yeah. more secure.
2: Yeah. But now we're moving into a new world because, you know, I have a 16 year old. So I used to, and I've explained because I've seen kids do stupid things. I've seen kids get involved in sextortion and everything. And I would have to say, keep your username and password safe. Use two-factor authentication. Unfortunately now, you know, unfortunately I'm not winning parent of the year, but my 16-year-old has graduated into online sports gambling. I'm not proud to say that. And also Coinbase and Robinhood. And I'm like, Oy, uh you know my oi comes out over here because now I'm so excited that my kids you know understanding stocks and trading crypto, he had this thing. And I'm like, okay, you have your own bank account, realize, let's look at all the problems that we have here that could be associated with connecting your bank account. And I connect an account that I don't care because I move money into the account and you can't compromise it. And if you do, I don't really care. But this is a great lesson because I'm sitting here with my son explaining to him that if you keep money in any of these accounts and you don't have two-factor authentication, Now, like I said, I'm not getting parent of the year award, but it's so important for me. And I feel like a success that what am I teaching my kid? If the bad guy steals username and password for your Coinbase account or your sports account, he's going to be able to take all of your money. I know that's not a great lesson over here, but I think... This isn't getting taught in school. We don't have this. The kids, nobody has two-factor authentication at school. And I've seen bad things happen.
1: And and, and, and I ago. have I, I have I have seen horrific things investigating the exploitation of children cases. And you know, it was funny. I I I am I, um, I absolutely adore my 11 year old niece. She is just the cutest thing in the world, and she is so smart, and so funny. But she and her mother were having an argument over her Snapchat account. And her mother said, well, I'm going to be on your account. I'm going to be a friend of yours. And, <laughs> and, the, uh, and, and, and the, my niece said, well, Aunt Tyler's fun. She, she'll see, say that you don't have to be on it. I said, no way. Not only is your mom going to be on it, I'm going to be on it.
2: <laughs> Let me tell you, I had access to my kid's account with his girlfriend. I don't want to be on it. You know, I hate to say it. I mean, things are so different right now. And as we move on to this other topic, and I think, you know, if you have children, you have to, I let my kids play way too many violent video games. I'm sorry. I did. But now we have a whole nother group of kids that are growing up that all have cell phones. They all have smartphones. They all have access to things. And now there is no shortage of today. Here, here is, the, here is the traditional scam that's impacting kids today. I got a call from a friend of mine. He had a 15-year-old son. He goes, and I can tell the stress in his voice. He goes, look, let me tell you what happened to my 15-year-old. I go, don't tell me. He met a girl on social media. They said, let's do a Zoom call together. She showed him her blank and he showed, he did this. And then she videotaped it and threatened to extort him because she recorded everything in a private YouTube. We have organized criminal enterprises, and that is sextortion, which is probably one of the biggest things that is going on today in high school kids. And just think about. There's not enough therapy that's going to help your kids. So are you having these discussions? Are you talking to them about this? We didn't have to worry about this when we were kids. You know, when I was a kid growing up in New York, I graduated high school in 1985. I hate to say it. Bullying was a full contact sport. And I learned to run really (laughs) fast. But I got home. And what did I do? I ran in my house. I ate too much. I closed the door. I watched the Flintstones. Everything was good. Today, you can't escape it with social no. media.
1: No, it, yeah. it, it destroys lives. And I, I mean, I know there's a lot of parents listening and we are going to do a, a kids episode. But, you know, what would be your top recommendations for parents? Like, what are three things that they can do right now to help secure their their child's um, online life?
3: I I think of a couple things. Scott, please go go first. Uh, One thing is, um, I think, to to Scott's point, you got to sit down and have those conversations. I've got two teenagers also, and we sit down and we talk. What social media apps are you on? What do you want to be on? What can't you be on? We talk about video games, and there's a level of monitoring. There are apps out there, too, that you can actually... Put on your kids' phones to monitor. It's an awkward one. Do you trust your kids enough to sit down and have that conversation? Hopefully you do. If you don't, then maybe you need to get some monitoring solutions where you actually can go on and see what their FaceTime usage is, what they're saying, they're texting. I think each parent has to make the decision for themselves. But the important thing is probably, number one, sit down and have those conversations. Before how you do old, anything.
2: Scott? How old do you think you should be starting these conversations?
3: Oh, it, it's it's got to start real early. Well, my my daughter's seventeen. My, my son is uh, now what uh, fourteen. I I started these conversations when they just started hitting around 11 years old, and that's where they yes. got the iPhones, the games, the friends, the internet. Um, so I think it's got to be early, way way t- earlier t- than us. <laughs> yes,
1: I, I I would almost say you know uh, seven, eight, nine.
2: You gotta have these conversations at the youngest age because I sit here and I put these presentations together for parents and they get so overwhelmed because here's here's what I tell them. You're gonna put the monitoring software on, they're gonna figure out a way around it. There's no way in the world. And every parent goes, hey, I read my kids' text messages. Well, they move on to Google chats. They move on to Snapchat. I was amazed when my son pulls up his uh, Snapchat account uh, uh, or one of the accounts and we're in a large subdivision and there's a map with all of his buddies located on it. Yeah. My kid's 16 and I go, you have that set up and here's a list of a hundred kids and where they're all located. And I guarantee you, if I had daughters, I would treat it a little differently. So you, we have to have these hard conversations at the earliest age. Your kids are going to figure a way around it. Do not think you are going to take technology and help improve your parenting skills. If you are not having these awkward conversations with your kids at the youngest age, they're or if you try to take it away, they're going to figure out a way around it. And do not let your kids, this is the mistake that I made with my kids. I let them have full access to it. But as a former FBI agent, you know, I have a one strike and you're out rule. But don't let your kids go to sleep and have access to their
3: phone. Agree, Scott? Yeah. Yeah. You, you got to take control. If you don't have those conversations and you don't set the boundaries, they will cross them. Because all the other kids at school, hey, our kids are given, they walk into the door and they're handed laptops to use that are connected to the Wi-Fi and everything else. So they're given the technology. They're learning the skills at a young age. They're going to use that to the best of their advantage. And they should for education, but sure. they shouldn't use it where, where they're going to be preyed on by scammers and others. I'm glad I didn't have a cell phone with a camera at my high school
2: beach parties <laughs> in 1985 because that may have prevented me from joining the FBI. And, and I tell kids yeah. now all the time, when I was a kid the teachers would threaten us. They would go like this, "It's going to go on your permanent record card." That wasn't now true. Now it
1: really now it really does. And something that if, if something claims it's going to delete itself 100%, that is not true. That that is not it, it is you can't delete something a hundred percent. And I think it's very important. You know, one of the things that I recommend granted my, my child is a two-year-old miniature schnauzer. And yes, he does have a social media account, but I monitor it. Um, you know, I would tell parents kind of make it into a game. And that's another good reason to start young because younger kids are more willing to get, get into, into a game. Like, how do you vet if who you're talking to is who you, who they say they are? Also, um, we have an episode coming up on December 1st um, with uh, David and David from Pay It Forward. And we literally go through the iPhone step by step. There are certain things that you can turn on and that you can mm-hmm. turn off to help keep your child even safer. Yeah.
3: I think that's so really important. You got to do that. Take the time. To step through the technology, become part of the solution with your child, not the problem. Later, when you're having a fight or arguing or trying to obtain a password and get access to things, you won't be trusted, and then they'll guard it, and it'll be even harder. Well, one thing I noticed my son recently: anytime it looks questionable, scan. He runs over, said, "Dad, is this a scam? Look at my phone. Look what I just received. Look at his text message. Look at his email." So, having those conversations early, your kids will come to you to be part of the solution, which is great. Great stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, my goodness. So I think we've, we've covered, you know, do not use the same password for anything. Um, if something does, if something appears as if it, it may be too good to be true, it is, mm-hmm. um, you know, get some type of, of monitoring service so that at least you have an alert and use multi-factor authentication um, on all of your accounts. We um, you have just a few seconds left. Do either, either Scott's have any parting words
2: I just had a great time today being with both of you. I mean, I just think this show is awesome.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I love the fact that we can talk about the importance of being connected, but at the same time, how education plays a vital role. Communication and education, these don't cost money. They cost time. So if we're parents, if we're somebody helping another person, it could be a senior, it could be our kids, it could be a coworker take the time to educate and share information to keep us all safer. So that way we could fight back against all these cyber criminals and actually make a difference by being proactive.
1: That was, that was great. So thank you so much for having you guys back on, uh, for, for having you guys on, um, please go out and buy, um, one of, or all three of Scott Schober's books, um, Hacked again. Cybersecurity is everybody's business. And senior cyber, or and or Scott's book, um, secrets to the secrets to cybersecurity. Thanks for listening. Join us next week where we're going to talk about everything to protect your finances. We're going to have Brett King, the king of fintech, on. This is Tyler Cohen Wood with My Connected Life. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to My Connected Life. We have much more for you next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be careful with your data and your life.